You're listening to Destination Country X, a KPMG tax radio podcast series. We cover key U.S. and foreign tax and trade developments that affect cross-border investment. I'm your host, Kim Major, a principal with Washington National Tax and tax industry lead for U.S. international corridors. We're glad you could join us. Enjoy the program. So on this side of the Atlantic, we've been hearing a lot about Brexit for quite some time, starting with the 2016 referendum for the UK to leave the European Union. We saw Brexit evolve through sound bites, deal or no deal, deadlines, extensions. And when it finally arrived, because it did at 11 p.m. on New Year's Eve 2020, it, well, kind of stuck up on us. And to be fair, there were plenty of other things competing for our attention in 2020, But today, we're going to take some time to refocus on Brexit and what it means for moving people, goods, and money into and out of the UK. Joining me today are my co-host, Courtney Wallace, an international tax principal from our Detroit office, Matthew Harrington, international tax partner from KPMG UK, and Tim Sarson, value chain management partner and Brexit specialist, also from our UK office. Thank you, Kim, and thank you, Tim and Matthew, for joining us. And to carry on a bit on what Kim said, I know you told us many times it was coming, but it did feel like with all the delays, it maybe got pushed a little bit to the back burner for our clients and focusing on what Brexit means to them. But I can say now that it's here, there's been a big increase really in the questions on what it means for them in a lot of different areas. It's early days, but we've been hearing stories about banana tariffs, prescriptions issued in the UK being declined in EU countries, fish and COVID vaccines being held up at the border, just growing pains as the UK moves into a new normal, but useful snapshots of the practical implications of Brexit. So perhaps, Tim, we start with you. Can you tell us what you see as the most immediate Brexit issues faced by multinationals? Yeah, thanks, Kim. Actually, what you're seeing in the news is quite representative of what's happening on the ground. There are certain industries for which Brexit has, despite all of the apparent preparation beforehand, has come as a bit of a surprise. I think what the big surprise has been is that the way that the EU treats third countries is the way that the UK is going to be treated from now on. The big things that are affecting companies straight away, number one, just keeping the lights on, in other words, keeping business flowing and particularly physical supply chains. We thought that international business travel would be a big deal, but there's another thing that's stopping international business travel at the moment. So that's really yet to happen. That'll happen once COVID's over. But getting goods across the border, particularly where they're goods subject to what we call sanitary and phytosanitary checks, in other words, food, animals, livestock, It's always quite difficult to get that kind of product into the EU or from the EU to a third country. But usually there's a big ocean between. For the UK, we're putting stuff on lorries, loading it onto a ferry or to a train and taking it across the channel. And the way that the Brexit deal has been designed doesn't really lend itself to that kind of roll-on, roll-off traffic. I did see an article. One of the lorry drivers had his ham sandwich seized at the border because it wasn't appropriate to take fresh food from one jurisdiction to another. And all of a sudden he's like, oh, this is a different jurisdiction. Yeah, that stuff's fundamental. And this has been where a lot of the sense of denial is. So I thought that the ham sandwiches were really (laughs) illustrative. I mean, clearly the Dutch border guards were having a bit of fun making a point. And why shouldn't they? But why did those lorry drivers think that they could take fresh meat products across the border? They wouldn't dream of flying into the US with fresh meat products. There'd be a bunch of 
posters at the airport telling them these are the things that you're not allowed to bring into the United States. But because it's Europe, because they're so used to just popping across the channel in their lorries with their ham sandwiches. I'm sure the Dutch make their own very good ham sandwiches they could have bought there, but it's just come <laughs> as a complete shock to the system. It's going to take us a long time to get used to it because it's not changing anytime soon. There's not going to be some sort of ham sandwich waiver coming down the line. And then the same for companies applies too. We've seen particular impact on small, medium-sized enterprises. There are lots of companies in Europe that, although they sell cross-border and have done since their inception, they don't really import and export. They're trading in a single market in a customs union. They're suddenly facing the shock that if you're continent-based and you're selling to the UK, one of your major markets is suddenly somewhere you export to with a whole load of paperwork. And then British companies that have essentially been selling into Europe as if it were the same country. It's hit them harder, I would say, than the really big multinationals that have already got the footprint, the local subsidiaries, the local VAT registrations, the local factories, etc., to be able to trade on a more sort of import-export basis anyway. It kind of strikes me that some of this is paperwork. Yeah, maybe held up and maybe it's not an immediate issue, as you say, because of COVID. Some of the more regulatory issues, that is not paperwork. What Brexit is doing for competitiveness and what it's doing for just the cost of doing business is it's introducing friction. And it's like you're, you're putting a stone in the, the river and you know investment will flow anyway, but it might flow more slowly if it's damming the river or it might find ways to flow around it going to mean certain businesses just have to reconfigure themselves because they can't trade the way they were before. And there's a load of regulatory stuff, particularly affects the financial services industry, as well as others like pharmaceutical and chemicals. And some of those multinationals have got some quite big immediate or medium term challenges that they're going to need to deal with in order to be able to trade smoothly in the future. That's something that people are actually going to have to plan to. And if they don't plan correctly, particularly for things like pharmaceuticals, they're going to be much slower to market than they had been. A lot of the companies who are in development on lines of businesses or drugs, whatever it is, let's just focus on pharmaceuticals for a second. Those co-collaboration arrangements are very specific with respect to the milestones that are getting paid. Some of the regulatory milestones are, oh, EU approval or CE marks or FDA approval, that kind of thing. The EU has always been treated as a big block. And not only are we looking at things on the regulatory big picture basis, but there are a lot of contracts that kind of use the EU as a shorthand. And a lot of companies are going to have to start thinking about what do my liabilities and contracts and rights look like? And is it not just that the governments have to figure it out, it's I have to figure it out too. Yeah, and a lot of the bigger companies went through a pretty hefty exercise, in some cases a couple of years before Brexit, to go through all of their contracts and work out which terms either need to be changed because they don't make sense anymore post-EU, or actually because they might give them a problem, a situation where, for example, they don't have any recourse to a counterparty. Of course, again, the smaller companies or those that were less familiar with Brexit or for whom Brexit was not so high on the agenda, those are the ones that are having to kind of struggle to catch up now. Feels like we saw the same in the financial services space. We've got a bunch of clients that have captive financing or otherwise. It seems like they were further ahead in anticipating some of these changes. I feel like some of the manufacturers in the supply chain space and otherwise it are the ones getting caught a little flat-footed on this. If you have a regulator breathing down your neck and saying, you have to make these changes because if you don't, then what you're doing post-Brexit is going to be unlawful. Then right. it focuses the mind. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
one of the things that does help a little bit is on the UK side, largely unilateral, there are a number of easements that mean that as of day one, things aren't quite as tricky as they will be in future. If we go back to pharmaceuticals, a number of regulatory requirements that the MHRA, UK equivalent of the European Medicines Agency, have said that certain things won't be required until later this year or next year or even into 2023. That does give a bit of a glide path for some of the companies that were a bit slower, but it also, of course, gives the government time to get their act together and think about, well, what do we want our regulatory environment to look like? Britain is now not dissimilar from Switzerland. Companies have had to deal with the fact that Switzerland is not a member of the EU for many years. It's caused regulatory issues, it causes customs complexities, it causes immigration complexities. It's just that Switzerland's position has vis-a-vis the EU has evolved over decades, whereas this is a cliff edge with the UK. One day we're in the EU, the next we're not even in the single market. It is true that when we're talking to clients, there is a sense of, oh, you can go to the EU and here are all the jurisdictions within the EU. And then there's Switzerland. It is part of the same conversation, but it really is a different choice. The rates are different. The structure is different. And they present a lot of competitive advantages. I wonder whether the UK is going to be able to tread the same path. It's tricky. The UK was already seen as a reasonably tax efficient jurisdiction, certainly comparatively with a lot of other developed world countries. Mm. But Britain is never going to be a country with a tax system like Ireland. It's had a 12.5% tax rate for a long time and it needed to do that because it needed to attract foreign direct investment. The UK has competing demand. So on the one hand, we do rely on and we require FDI. We're seen or have been seen for a long time as a hub location. But on the other hand, we have a need for significant tax take and we have a trade deficit that we need to sort out. We have some real issues with productivity and regional inequality as well. So you're not going to have what I think the EU slightly fears. They talk about Singapore on Thames. Britain can't be Singapore because we're not a small city state. London could quite easily be Singapore on Thames, but we have (laughs) the rest of the, the country to think about. So we'll always be a mixture. So, Matthew, maybe if we think a little bit about tax landscape and what we just heard about Ireland, do you see a need or potential shift for Ireland to come back in line with the other jurisdictions? It seems to be still such an outlier. It's an interesting perspective. A lot of that will depend upon what happens at a European level, both in relation to the fact that the UK has gone and also in relation to the direction of travel that the European project was on even before Brexit. As I look at the development of European tax policy at the moment, there's obviously certain things that are coming back to the fore that have gone around many times before. The common consolidated corporate tax base, the CCCTB, a big refreshed push for moving away from unanimity in voting matters in relation to taxation, what's called qualified majority voting. I do wonder whether we'll see increasing homogenization of European tax regimes, certainly five, ten years out from now. That's more likely than not, in my view. I think the, as you put it, Courtney, maybe the more outlying regimes will be under some pressure to align. And at the moment, obviously, the BEPS 2.0 discussions continue along. I think it's 
generally expected that the min tax rate will be somewhere in the range of 12 and a half to 15. But I've heard plenty of discussion that academia, NGOs, and many of the publications that were put forward at the OECD consultation in January were calling for a rate closer to the US current rate at 21%. So very much remains to be seen on that. I do think there is a trend towards more homogenization, more alignment of the base very least, if not the rates as well. I'd also say as well, as you look at the projects that the European Commission has undertaken in the last five to 10 years, there's been actually quite a lot of success at the European level of coordinating efforts in relation to taxation. And we see some very obvious examples, such as the Anti-Tax Avoidance Directive. The European Commission is talking now as well around renewed directives on digital taxation and so on. So I don't dismiss the, the chances of the Commission being able to do something quite uniform across the region in Europe. I feel like moving from unanimity to majority vote on tax issues that's going to be a huge accelerator in terms of homogenization. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the incentive would be for individual countries to move towards qualified majority voting, moving away from unanimity. Obviously, that has been a protection used by many countries over the years, UK included, to veto certain proposals which have come through, which are not regarded as perhaps accretive to their own attempts to attract foreign inward investments. Matthew, where do you see some of the biggest challenges? Where I see a lot of activity, and that probably informs the answer, which is on the indirect side of things and documentation and processes. But for example, what we've seen quite quickly was falling away of some of the things like DAC 6, for example, the mandatory disclosure rules. Still a lot of activity around what do affected businesses, perhaps with European transactions that they were going to report in the UK, what do they need to do in that context? There's still something to do there, but a bit of a lightening of, of a burden in that context. At the same time, there's the concept of EU retained law, so various aspects of UK law which were amended or changed in the light of European decisions of the Court of Justice, for example, which are then baked into domestic legislation. Examples of that would include certain rules around loss relief, surrender, NOL attributes being used in groups. All of those bits of law are already baked into legislation and are retained, so it sort of feels relatively straightforward. There's been some activity, I think it's fair to say, around the falling away of the existence of the directives, so interest and royalties directive, for example. There are a few residual 5% withholdings, for example, on dividend flows from Europe. People are finding generally that the UK treaty network generally gets you to a, a good place. There will be an attempt to accelerate renegotiations of treaties uh, in relation to jurisdictions where there are residual withholdings. So perhaps sort of on the direct tax side, I, I think the landscape is perhaps a little bit more manageable. I think where it's a little bit harder is on the indirect tax side. So see under the free trade agreement, in essence, the, the principle is sort of UK and EU goods won't be subject to tariffs or quotas, but they have to meet specific rules of origin, which are complex. And if you don't meet the relevant rules of origin, you know, your supply chains can be impacted by additional costs. 
there are a lot of just-in-time sort of component type assembly arrangements in manufacturing in things like the automotive industry where you're shipping components and bits and pieces of products across the border uh, countless times and you'll have bits and pieces of products coming in from other countries as well but so long as you could aggregate that all together and you could say well overall 60 percent or 70 percent of this product is eu origin or it's uk origin then you're kind of fine now it's a lot harder because the uk itself is non-eu that has an impact when you're shipping from something that's been made in the eu and uk to another third country but also if you import something from the eu into the UK, you clear it for customs. If you then want to ship it back out to the EU, so you're using UK as your European warehouse hub, it no longer can have EU origin and it doesn't have UK origin either. So you're facing customs duty on it. It's a really complicated area. Even in relation to meeting rules of origin, you still have customs declarations to go through, as Tim alluded to. So even if you are a business that ultimately will not be experiencing tariffs or quotas, I think there is additional paperwork and compliance. But, but I think in relation to the indirect tax side, that's certainly more where we see a challenge. Mm -hmm. Are there any other issues that you think we ought to talk about? I have to say something which people in Britain are going to have to get their heads around post-Brexit as well, is that the EU is an emerging regulatory superpower. When it comes to regulation and when it comes to governance, for many decades it's been the US that has kind of taken the lead on that, particularly on extraterritoriality, on the idea that, that you can be policing regulations outside your borders. The EU has kind of discovered it and, and discovered it with a vengeance in the last decade or so. And I think BEPs and things like the, the transparency agenda, C by C, and then public C by C are examples of where the EU has really been at the forefront of setting the agenda. I think we'll see more of that. And there's a large body of opinion in the UK, I could say it's a body of denial, that thinks that post-Brexit Britain will no longer be subject to EU regulation. The fact is we're going to be a rule taker. We've got this vast regulatory power on our doorstep, and what it does is going to have an impact on us, but increasingly also on the rest of the world. It's a little bit like we're gone, but not forgotten. We're in the same position, essentially, as Canada is. We've got a very powerful, influential neighbour to our south with a sort of semi-hard border. And it's exactly the same sort of, you can't escape geography, you can't escape gravity. Like it or, or lump it, that's what's going to happen with Britain. And, and our relationship with the EU will ebb and flow over the years. Mm -hmm. This is something we were kind of used to the Americans doing. It's taking people a while to understand that the EU is quite good at that game too. <laughs> so again, early days. And as we get farther down the road, we will undoubtedly start to see a little more daylight between the UK and the EU, particularly if the EU member states begin converging from a tax, trade and investment perspective. It will be an interesting journey. In the meantime, thanks for joining us. Stay well, everyone. We'll speak again soon. You've been listening to Destination Country X. Thanks so much for tuning in. We look forward to speaking to you next time. Bye.